stage tonight, Devil's Night, we have some special guests, former members of the Satanic Temple in New York, and now founding members of the Satanic organizations, Lore and Faust. Lore identifies as a collective of sexy neo-romantic anarcho-Satanists. Faust is a polydox network of Satanic cabals. The title of this video is taken from another self-description on the Lore website. Massively blasphemous, anti-authoritarian shit starters and sexy as fuck. Given the nature of our discussion and our current religious and political climate, neither guest can tell us their given names. So I'd like to welcome Hoffman and Damon to the integral stage. And they will be joined by another shit starter, already well known and beloved among our viewers. For our discussion tonight, Hoffman will begin by offering a brief history of Satan and Satanism. Damon will tie this into post-integral and metamodernist movements and sensibilities. Our third guest will offer his own sinister ruminations on the topic, and then we'll open up for group dialogue, wherever that takes us. Hoffman? Great, thanks. Uh, so uh, really briefly, uh, my background with Integral started in the 90s really with uh, Gene Gepser before I even discovered Ken Wilber, but I have about 20 years background in that, uh, more of a Gebserian. For uh, this audience, I guess they'll know what that means. Um, so my interest in the stuff we're talking about tonight started a long time ago, but in recent years, I kind of rediscovered it um, with uh, all these lineages that exist that a lot of people didn't really know about. Um, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try to keep it to three to five minutes, even though we could do whole, um, well, there are whole books and many whole books and shelves full of books. So there'll be a lot of links available uh, for everyone. Uh, so a lot of people may be uh, aware that the first time that the name Satan shows up is actually in Hebrew and it did not refer to an entity, a specific person. Uh, it just meant the adversary. Um, if you go on YouTube, there's an Alan Watts video. It's about two minutes long of someone asked him to talk about Satan and he goes to the book of Job. And he basically talks about Satan as being like a prosecutor uh, in the court of heaven. Um, and then over time, we start seeing that that word starts becoming to represent something that's in uh, opposition to uh, Jesus Christ and early Christianity. And so early on, there was no sense of evil associated with the word Satan. It was just an obstacle, uh, somebody that was accusing you of something, someone that was keeping you honest or looking at the bad things and making sure that you weren't getting away with things that you shouldn't be getting away with. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to the Middle Ages. Of course, a lot happens. Uh, the stuff with the Roman Empire, um, uh, taking on uh, Christianity to basically save their politics. There's many books about that. I'm not an expert on that. So in the Middle Ages is where we start seeing the modern ideas of uh, kind of scapegoating, othering. It shows up in the witch trials. Uh, you know, many, many thousands of people in Europe were accused and killed. Uh, we have the situations here in colonial era United States where we had the witch trials, accusations of consorting with the devil. Um, and then we also have in the Middle Ages a lot of the uh, anti-Semitic blood libel claims that really kind of echo, or I should say our modern conspiracy theories often echo these same um, accusations that were made in the Middle Ages of how uh, Satan was created as Christians demonized each other. Uh, and then, of course, it's... Um, uh, demonizing uh, Jews, pagans, and of course those other heretics. Uh, moving into the modern era, uh, we really have to start with Milton and Paradise Lost. So that was really where there was a big change. Um, so, um, the Enlightenment is starting to uh, show a rear up a little bit. Um, changes in the way Western civilization, Western culture is approaching a lot of things, more secular ideas, anti-clerical thoughts. And so of course Milton was not a Satanist. 
Uh, he was um, not even uh, probably aware of what he had done. Uh, and it was William Blake. Uh, this is probably the book I'd recommend or the piece I'd recommend almost everyone read. Some people call this the original Satanic Bible, William Blake, Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And he said well, um, that Milton was of the devil's party without even knowing it. Uh, and that's the first time that we see the character of Satan showing up in literature as kind of a rebel against unjust authority, uh, fighting a back against an unjust God, uh, where there's arbitrary rules, it doesn't seem to be fair. Um, and then there's a whole canon of literature that really followed after that. Um, and that really brings us up to the Romantics. Uh, Romantic poets, it was the beginning of the proto-feminist, early modern anarchists. Um, one of the famous poets uh, said that they were the satanic school. So those uh, Romantic poets were described as being satanic. Of course, uh, they have some um, very, uh, the Byronic hero, which literature people are probably familiar with. And there was also the French decadence movement, which was uh, art movements that was happening in France and Germany. Um, the very, uh, let's see here, Jules Michelet is somebody people might be interested in. He was writing in the 1860s. Uh, he was the first one that I'm aware of that started writing about witchcraft as a sort of rebellion against an oppressive church. So we have J.K. Huizman, uh, who wrote Against Nature, 1880s. Um, and then that kind of leads up to, uh, I'm going to mangle this name, Stanislav Perzbizuski, uh, who is probably arguably the first self-identified Satanist in the 1890s. So prior to that, no one called themselves a Satanist. It was, a, it was an accusation against other people. It was a, a, a way to uh, put, uh, control people, uh, to get them to get out of your way in some ways, um, for everything from burning witches at the stake to just trying to control which church is in uh, charge of what particular area. So we have somebody who comes along and says, no, I am a Satanist. Um, and then, of course, in 1966 is when LaVey, Anton LaVey, founds the Church of Satan. And that's really the origins of modern Satanism, where you have a real codified uh, religion. Um, that's a whole other discussion. Our background, um, Damon and I, we are not LaVeyan. Uh, that's another discussion for another time. Uh, but he more or less took Ayn Rand, uh, mashed it together with uh, Ragnar Redbeard's uh, book, Might is Right, and then added ritual magic. And he even admits that. He'll say, I basically took Ayn Rand and added ritual magic to it. Uh, but that's kind of where modern Satanism came out of. Uh, 1975, uh, Aquino leaves the Church of Satan and founds Temple of Set. And then from there, we have all these different things kind of happening. Uh, leading into the satanic panic of the 80s, which is something we can talk about another time, um, up to kind of modern times where the biggest emergence of a new organization really was the satanic temple um, in 2012, 2013, depending on when you look at that. So um, that is a really quick, brief overview of a lot of stuff. We will have lots of links available for people that want to look more up, that are more interested in all these different histories. Uh, some people may be surprised I was not talking about occult stuff as much. Um, there are people that are interested in that aspects of it. Uh, we're focused primarily more on the politics and culture uh, aspects of new religious movements, not so, not so much necessarily like spiritual practices or ritual practices. Um, and I think that's probably a good intro for now to kind of contextualize what we're talking about. Excellent. Thank you, Brother Hoffman, for, for leading me to, to my juncture here. And can I just greet you belatedly with our routine salute from Lore, the League of Rebel Eve. Shit sucks sometimes. <laughs> yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of you as well, to Brucifer and Frater Pascal, let me extend to you 
our sentiment that shit sucks sometimes to which you respond it sure does or it sure does it sure, it sure does. does thank you well i am demon j placebo i am the unofficial official spokesperson of lore the league of uh, <laughs> the league of rebel eve i should probably get our name down a bit better if i'm going to get bumped over to the official official spokesperson but in any case my background with integral since i think that's what we'd like to frame here is um it was before my uh, rather sinister career in marketing that I actually had a very formalized education in the Western classics, in the Western philosophy and literature. And I also had an exposure to uh, Eastern thought. Uh, I had fallen down a bit of a rabbit hole of Advaita Vedanta and had studied uh, the writings of Vivekananda rather extensively. And I was... Uh, really meditating on this uh, seeming um, incongruity between this conservative cyclical cycle of social control and a lack of really believing in true uh, human transcendence that I was getting from my Western uh, classical education, but also trying to align this with this more uh, liberal perspective that there was linear growth and progress capable for human beings in society. And I actually saw some uh, ways to actually understand the development of humans and the relationship with uh, with reality through these Eastern texts. And there's this strange overlapping. And so I was contemplating on the combination of circles and lines. And basically, I accidentally invented spiral dynamics. That's a true story. I, I, I didn't really have any good thoughts on it. But then in Googling any thought related to this, I came across uh, the work of Beck and Cowan. And then I stumbled into... Uh, Ken Wilber with some pit stops uh, kind of backwards and forwards in time to Jean Gebser. And uh, now I'm a friendly and a personal associate with Hansi Frenacht of the Metamodern Movement. And all of this in some ways intertwines a bit with our project. Not to say that everyone involved has read any of this or would want to hear any of us talk about it for any length of time. But I can find many particular ways in which this integral lens and a metamodern sentiment is really uh, one of the best ways to understand what we're trying to do. So lore, as uh, uh, Hoffman alluded to, emerged from the Satanic Temple. And if you'd like to learn a bit more about them, there's a book coming out from the Oxford University Press uh, shortly called Speak of the Devil, How the Satanic Temple is Changing the Way We Talk About Religion. There's also a uh, documentary, and I say that with quotes because it's maybe a bit more of an infomercial, but I, I hear it's a good watch called Hail Satan. Uh, it was out in theaters, and I believe it's on, uh, on demand now. Uh, the, the Satanic Temple is a, it's a quick run through. It was an activist and arts community with a, a non-theistic spiritual uh, or, or non-theistic religion um, sort of orientation with a center in Salem, Massachusetts. The two things that they focused on in terms of activism that brought a lot of people around, including myself, was their attention to the First Amendment and their work bringing uh, attention to the hypocrisy of having religious monuments at state capitals. And they tried to uh, insert a, into a couple of different uh, state capitals a statue of Baphomet. Uh, the uh, satanic image, which of course people did not take kindly to. They also did a lot of work regarding reproductive rights and in some states, including Missouri, they actually sued the state for having to have their members view 
propaganda based in non-scientific religious ideology, which was uh, a, a, uh, something that directly violated the tenets of being a member of the Satanic Temple. Uh, what happened in the past few years was, let's say, a, um, a split for uh, creative differences, though. If you pull aside a member of our organization or any of the number of groups that actually left the Satanic Temple, there's a bit more kind of uh, ruffled feathers still there. It's basically what we saw was it was a group that projected values that were extremely appealing and interesting. And then on the inside of it, we didn't always feel that these values were actually being, uh, you know, acted upon. I don't know if you can imagine a vaguely uh, religious or social organization that had different values internally and externally. It really threw us through a loop. But what we saw was associations with people that we found ideologically problematic. There's a lack of financial transparency in terms of where the actual funding was going when, there was, uh, when they were raising money for these different social activities. The leadership followed somewhere between pure chaos and an authoritarian streak where the, even though there were chapters around the country, there was no real way to have oversight in the direction of the organization. And generally, the uh, organization was rather inept when it came to governance and lacked a general competency in accomplishing its rather grand goals. So we split off, many other groups split off. Uh, Faust is, among other things, a sort of reemergence re of a meta group of these different organizations. But even though we lost the umbrella group that we were a part of, we knew we already had a community that had shared values. And it was really just a matter of uncovering what those values were and to looking at it, to look at those values through lenses that could help us grow in a way that would hold true to the reason we had all come together and to work towards a project where we're not even sure exactly what the end state might be but having a deep understanding of why we were there would be the first step to working together towards something better. So what we knew is that we had shared interests, we had similar humor, uh, we uh, had diverse aesthetics though, we had different careers and backgrounds, but there was something tying us there. Politically, a thing that we noticed is that we wouldn't really identify as liberals, mostly leftists, you know, is really to the left of this, mainstream points of view. Other common themes that actually hit upon an aesthetic that I've found uh, kind of resonance with in metamodernism is that there was an aversion to woo-ness. Uh, even though that there was a comfort with doing things that were esoteric, of uh, putting on performances that may be in different languages and have symbology that evokes something transcendent, there was actually a, a strong sense that this should always be seen as something done in play and to give a sort of uh, lightness to it and access to something higher inside yourself and never something actually supernatural outside of yourself that some people have more access to than others. Also in connection to metamodernism is a comfort with absurdity and sincerity that one should not, and actually it doesn't help you to take yourself too seriously in exploring these deeper values and the way that they overlap with one another. And that in pursuit of truth, actually one of the strongest tools that you can use is 
to laugh at yourself and to realize that no one truly has authority when it comes to any of these things. And then lastly, I think something that answers the question of why Satanism? What is this about? Why are you into this esoteric side of this Judeo-Christian thing? And I think what it is is an interest in what Hansi Frenacht would identify with as dark depth, that along a spectrum of states that you can experience, what we often don't want to experience are the negative, more intensely uh, painful states. But what we're interested in is folding down these different states onto each other so that the darkest ones have a way to interact with the brightest ones. If you put a number spectrum on it, it's that your first level, most like hellish state can actually be a pathway into a transcendent non-dualistic state. And there are traditions such as Tantra that touch upon this as well. It's a kind of the opposite of going the ascetic path towards enlightenment. And then it's also specifically secular. It's not trying to step into a truly supernatural state, but seeing it as all of this is existing within what we'd call normal reality. So to get to what our values really were, and uh, Brother Hoffman, if you could throw up a, a share the screen of our website, that would probably be very helpful at this point. What we did is we wanted to, similar to what the Satanic Temple had, is uh, elucidate what our values were. And to do this, we use some very boring consultancy uh, practices that you might use uh, at your day job. And we basically gave essay prompts to a bunch of our Satanists using Google Docs. They wrote in what they wanted to get from this organization. I think the question I prompted them with is, what would make this group really fucking cool? And what would make this group really not fucking cool? And from those essay prompts, we pulled out things that were an ideological preference and things that were a value preference. And we fed them through um, an analysis to see what came up most often. And then crystallizing that, we had them vote upon it again. And this was part of what we called a dark meditation with final step was two members got together and they looked at this raw data and they put together a rather poetic set of values uh, using some uh, developmental uh, lenses to create a sequence that could speak to the order in which individuals may move through these values and at different times and at different orders of uh, comfort be able to access these and that also our group would need to deal with these in a certain sequence that you cannot always it's our last value uh, says be integratively expanding if you're not able to meet your lower needs so uh, there is a sequential order that's important here and then also there's a tension expressed in all of these if we go to the first one, I think this may be one of the most uh, satanic seeming of them. Transcendently hedonistic pulls together two concepts that have this uh, kind of uh, uneasiness between them. I think a lot of us in a, our paths of trying to understand what it can mean to be a spiritual person evolving towards something have probably had uh, difficulty with understanding the relationship between something more spiritual and transcendent in our body and our hedonistic impulses and that there's inevitably strains of asceticism in any path 
Well, we fully and unapologetically wanted to assert from the beginning that the one of the paths there is hedonism, but it is mediated by the quality that it shall be transcendent. So that's a, one of the more interesting um, like pathways perhaps into an integral discussion. And I think I'll leave it off there, but uh, appreciate you letting us unpack our funny little project. And thank you. And uh, I think we're gonna hand it over to brother Pascal. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think at this point I gotta take this mask off. I can barely breathe in this thing. Ah, much better. Oh. Why am I here? I'm not in any of these groups and I love God. Well, what fascinates me about all this, I'm a tremendous supporter of these projects. I'm behind all the values that you've laid out. The role of the anti-archetype in any kind of developmental, cultural, cognitive stage and in its transcendence fascinates me. I don't think you can move to the next level of anything without incorporating and revaluing elements that were excluded from the conventional form of the level you were previously at. So you've absolutely got to integrate things that seem to be not only off to the side, but possibly even condemned or negative or negatively polarized at whatever level you're at. So it's not just that some people might be interested in Tantra and the left-hand path. I don't think you can perform a developmental move without integrating these kind of shadow materials. Um, and I think the main one historically, as Hoffman mentioned, is sort of the transition to modernity, where you have a, a Luciferic, satanic, liberating figure as opposed to uh, conformist, dogmatic, and often deeply pathological monotheistic systems. Uh, I'm fascinated by that stuff. I'm interested in whether or not monotheism represents an amber pathology or the normative form of amber. I'm interested in how we tease apart um, those aspects of the shadow which are actually degenerative and regressive, which lead back down toward more primitive stages, and those aspects of the shadow which open us up to whatever our next stage is. And I think that's something we all need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Very fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank all of you for what you've shared so far. I think it opens up uh, a lot of possible avenues for uh, what we might explore. I, one thing that I was thinking about as we were approaching this is, uh, and, and it related to something that uh, uh, Lehman also posted in some working notes when we were approaching this dialogue, and that is whether Satanism is, in some sense, an esoteric form of uh, Christianity or Abrahamic faith, um, as well as its you know, antagonistic rival at the same time. And what is that tension there? Uh, I was thinking, you know, in a way, there is a way to see Satanism as a really radical, ethical, Christian gesture. And I don't want to limit it only to Christianity. I think it is bigger, and we can talk about that. Um, as a Christian, when I, was, when I was younger, I was Christian. I'm no longer. But when I was Christian, the more I deepened in that path, I began to ask questions like, shouldn't we be praying for Satan? And shouldn't we be praying for his demons? And it was partly tongue-in-cheek because I didn't believe in either of those things as, as actual literal entities or, or, or powers. 
but I did see it as the natural outcome of the core of Christian teaching, which when it's really taken on and lived, it's actually subversive and radical. And that is, you know, the movement towards the other, towards the outsider, the expression of love towards that which is despised um, and challenging uh, the, the narrowness of one's own uh, capacity to relate to others uh, and, and seeking always to rupture those limits and, and embrace, you know, something fuller. And so I really felt that there was a falling short in my own Christian teaching of, you know, of traditional religion in the way it, it handled the figure of Satan and demons. And it was absolutely unthinkable to my peers to, to pray for <laughs> any of them. And so what are your thoughts on that in terms of, uh, you know, the basic framing that, that Satanism is in some sense uh, true to uh, the radical essence of, of those traditions against which it actually sets itself? And then what are the ways it actually is setting itself against them? Um, I mean, one thing I'd, I'd add is uh, William Blake himself, he was not a Satanist, but he was a Gnostic Christian. He was, um, um, so even though he's kind of seen as um, an important figure in the evolution of modern Satanism, um, he himself was a Gnostic Christian, and he was really toying with those two things in Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Uh, and I, that's why I recommend everyone read that. It's available for free everywhere. It's been in the public domain forever, and it's a very, it's a very beautiful um, and it's also, uh, it's, it is a poem, but it's also in like dialogue. He switches between discussions and then these kind of simple, sim, single lines. But he talks about the, the types of things you're talking about in there in a, in a more esoteric kind of fashion. But I think that there is that, pat, there is that thread and there, and there are people that do approach it more that way as opposed to the, the staunchly anti-clerical, anti-side uh, of things, which... Um, in some cases is focused more on the actual institutions of corrupt churches and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, more of the political and sociocultural aspects of it. Um, but yeah, that's just a thought I would point people towards William Blake again for, the, for that angle. And I, I would be remiss as our unofficial spokesperson to uh, send people to our website to look at a press release that uh, we released talking about the uh, merger between heaven and hell and we put it in a very similar concepts into bland corporate jargon, uh, talking about how there is still room. I think this is the meta commentary on what that is, is that there's absolutely still room to look at the uh, kind of bifurcation of this concept of heaven and hell in even, I think, secular culture we still have these archetypes in our head. And the idea of integrating these two domains as a sort of plane in which all of reality exists and that practices that seem on one hand satanic and, on an, and then other ones that we associate with more allowable, conventionally acceptable activity that leads you to being a good person there's something still so potent about combining these things and to bring it into modern context. So uh, I encourage you to, to look at what we did there and would love discussion about where it seemed like we succeeded and failed in trying to bring that same um, non-dualism into a modern corporate boardroom context. 
I love that piece of writing and definitely would encourage everybody to go check it out. And I'd like to also open up maybe some discussion around uh, the notion of, of left-hand paths. And I don't want to dwell so much on the esoteric or, or um, you know, Gnostic spiritual. You know, I think that's not the main focus of, of your own organizations. Uh, but there is an element that I'd like to, to look at. And for instance, I, I notice in, especially the, the League of Rebel Eve, Lore's uh, self-descriptions, and you know, evaluation, especially of, of feminism and of fighting, you know, very passionately and 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 forcefully for women's uh, rights and uh, and autonomy over their own bodies, um, and left-hand paths traditionally. Um, in a past discussion with with you, Hoffman, also you mentioned to me a difference uh, between the Asian traditions and uh, the satanic. Um, so I'd like to circle around that. But one thing I'm thinking of here is, if you look at the origin of the left-hand paths, uh, the term coming from Madame Blavatsky, um, borrowing that uh, actually from the Sanskrit term, Urvamachar, um, uh, which is, it actually has an ambiguous meaning. Um, it can either mean symbolically uh, kind of the, the, the left path, but it can also be the women's path, the woman's path, the path of uh, goddess worship, the path of the veneration of Shakti. And uh, the, the focus in Lore and Faust, especially on uh, playing with the, the archetype um, and, and actually the actuality of the outcast. Um, and, and if you look at uh, Buddhist Tantra, where they carry the skull staff. That traces back to Shaivism. At the time, there was a punishment given to people who inadvertently killed a Brahmin. And that was they were punished, they were made to carry uh, a staff with the skull of the Brahmin on top of it and dress themselves in a loathsome fashion and do ascetic practices and hang out in charnel grounds and other um, loathsome areas and those Shaivites doing that practice eventually transformed and, and they actually embraced all of that symbology where originally it was a form of punishment and a means of making them outcast and that was kind of folded in and, and, and revaluated and it became a sacred path or a spiritual uh, path and way of life itself. Um, so I, I see some echoes, in other words, between that, that history and some of the values and, and projects um, that inform Lore and Faust. So I was interested uh, in, in either of your comments on that, Hoffman and, and Damon, and also just your uh, reflections on it, uh, Frater Pascal. Anyone want to uh, take that one? Anyone want to go first? You want to go first, Brother Hoffman? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, a few thoughts was... Um, you know, obviously our name, League of Rebel Eve, uh, is referring back to the, you know, Genesis 3, Garden of Eden, um, and in a lot of the feminist literature of the 20th century was when that started getting heavily reappropriated, but it goes back even earlier than that to uh, different sources of fiction, um, 
where the the snake in the garden is is actually Lucifer the light bearer, not Satan, not something or not something evil, uh, but actually the hero uh, of the story. And Eve is Eve is unfairly treated, um, and ca- you know they're cast out because uh, she didn't just follow along and do what Father said. Uh, so we do we do find these rebellion stories um, and repurposing and re. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the actual name. There's a rereading. This is a more more specific academic name for a rereading uh, of something of um, classical texts. But that's why we've also um, kind of associated ourselves with satanic feminism, which is its own kind of emerging field in school. Um, Fairfax Snell's book is probably the premier one right now. Is his uh, dissertation that got published by Oxford University Press a few years ago. It is a tour de force. Um, it, there's, there's a lot in there, and uh, we felt that that was something that allowed us to be um, actively involved in contemporary issues of our time, uh, where we have these very kind of regressive evangelical state houses basically making it impossible for uh, people to have access to reproductive care, um, reproductive justice. It affects mostly poor, poor women. Um, Trans men as well are also affected by this. Um, and that just seemed like something that makes sense for people in New York to really take the banner of up for what, you know, what our interests are and to actually kind of um, act like, like be the scapegoat, be the other and kind of take some, take some of those hits uh, in a way to uh, try to actually affect change in some way. So that's where the, that's where like turning things around becomes powerful. Um, you know, the, to the extent that it's successful is, is still to be seen, but it does, does seem to be a very effective way to make something uh, self-empowering um, and then to empower others that see that you're willing to kind of stand out in front or take, take the hits for stuff that are traditionally seen as a um, outcasts or others. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of thoughts I have on what we're doing in more general context. To put it in the context of our values, I think we try to embody a lot of these in two different places. One was being defiantly protective. I think that's where you see uh, reference to bodily autonomy with alignment with the values of satanic feminism, but on not just a personal level, but to look at that through a collective level, what we were trying to talk about there was almost uh, to use some, uh, spiral colors for it, creating a very definitive protective purple circle around ourselves, a sort of uh, to, to reimagine these different values from a secular point of view, what can we get from it? And that's where those concepts seemed important to me. It was that a later one at the uncompromisingly inclusive where our political beliefs, as you'd normally call them, uh, the side to us that I think uh, can be disparaged sometimes as a a mean green meme where what we described it as, we make social and political space for all those who share our values, explicitly LGBTQIA+, and all bodies, races, ethnicities, and cultures. We reject bigotry and fascism and all kinds. I will say that we built those values in knowing that like a lot of organizations that have a progressive social agenda that is uh, explicitly 
rejecting fascist point of views, explicitly rejecting people who are trying to oppress people, that we were going to encounter the same um, issues of finding ways to avoid the hypocrisy of we're not including certain people in this. How can you say that you're inclusive? It's the kind of the age old green conundrum there. And I don't know if we've solved it, but it feels a bit <laughs> resolved in the way that we're unapologetically excluding views that are at a lower level of integrating different perspectives. And to try to finally tie this around to what you were getting at, Bruce, I think what's helpful is to see that being very strongly opinionated about progressing through these stages and accepting that you have to be tolerant and not tolerant, but able to uh, perceive from the different perspectives of other people and that this expands going forward, that it's a developmental necessity to have this uncompromisingly inclusive point of view there. Now, that would extend, I think, to having a complex understanding of why people have more problematic points of views. That's a necessity as well, I think. But what isn't something that has to be done is you don't have to bring them into your community. You don't have to give them a platform. And you don't have to engage with them. But you can still accomplish a level of having compassion for them and understanding them. And I would say also connecting to the idea of Satanism potentially being a radically, genuinely Christian perspective. I think that is like the inevitable place that you get to is that to truly understand people's perspectives, to embrace them, you one, don't necessarily have to spend time with them, but two, that looks dark and people will find it uh, problematic for you to understand people with troubling points of views. I think that there's something satanic about the integral project in itself. There's something very uh, dangerous seeming about saying, no, there's a reason why people think that way. But drawing that line between understanding people's perspectives and also understanding how those perspectives are limited and going out and actively giving only a certain amount of space for those different levels of development because you want to shape a world a certain way, that's where it again becomes an even further level of devilishness. And I think you make people uncomfortable in a different way at that point. And that's where I feel like, even though we have some integral aspects to it, I think we intentionally not needle at the integral community by going even a step further and saying, it's not only that all perspectives are valid, but some really need to be limited in their amount of exposure to broader communities. And that may be our job to protect people from that with full acknowledgement that there's inherent dangers in doing something like that. That goes right back to the original meaning of the word as the adversary or the accuser in that sense. Uh, well, to your question, Bruce, on left, I, I think you can draw a pretty good line between left-hand paths and left-hand politics in the sense that uh, 
right conserves and stabilizes any kind of platform and the left reaches out to transform that platform and the transformation and transgression and trans everything takes that left-hand progressive side because you're not going to grow unless you're folding in things that seemed to be not you, whether those things are alien things or whether they're rejected things. And at each system to the idea about um, esoteric Christianity and the semblance of anti-Christianity coming together, you have to fold in the things at a level, say, if you're operating with Christianity as a field or a group, it's going to be leaving a lot of things out in a lot of its manifestations, right? So it might be leaving out women. It might be leaving out a lot of things that associates with the pagan or the bodily or the hedonic or anything like that. So in order to even get it healthy, in order to be what it should be, it's got to be able to bring in the functional aspects of itself that it has excluded. And that's always going to look dark. Uh, and if what you've excluded is the feminine, then you've got to bring in the feminine, that kind of stuff. If what you've excluded is lust, then you've got to bring in lust. I think one of the things that's been excluded a lot at the higher levels of social and cognitive development we're seeing in the world today is aggression, right? Green is typically not very good at integrating aggression. It tends to be um, non-self-aware in its hyper-aggressive reactions against everyone it sees as representing aggression. Uh, and so to figure that out and to bring that into yourself, the warmth and the fire and the darkness we associate with aggression, I think is absolutely how um, today's current emerging levels have to operate in order to be healthy and grow beyond themselves. And this idea of defiant protection is absolutely part of that, right? There's a real aggressive element to the traditional iconography of Satanism and to the stance of people who feel like that's their way into being at whatever these higher levels are. People who want to go through this modality have a lot of humor, but they also are working a lot with an aggression that may be being left out of multi-perspectival society in some forms. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, aggression can mean a lot of things. Uh, you know, it can mean physical confrontation. It can mean uh, political confrontation. It can be artistic confrontation. Um, it could be in things you're doing uh, online. Uh, so, yeah, and I think it's just ways of, of channeling that and focusing that in a way that uh, we we appreciate. Um, and then, you know, being able to protect the, protect the people in our community because we are, you know, we do have unpopular opinions. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and there's people that want to hurt you. So um, we do want to be be aggressive in our protection of protecting the people that are around us for sure. Can I ask a question to Pascal? And this is coming from a fully admitted, just autodidact of integral theory and a, a, a poor self-teacher at that. A thing that's been um, a bit confusing for me is the kind of split sentiment that uh, stages transcend and include but also the kind of general sentiment that different stages are at odds with one another and that there is an inherent tension between them and that they view the other in, let's put it in uh, these terms, uh, as being a satanic manifestation, whether it's something uh, above it that it does not understand or something below it that it knows it needs to reject. And then what I see is an idea that, well, when you, if you want them to actually 
get to know each other and be comfortable with each other, you need to progress towards something of a second tier, some sort of turquoise or teal awareness to understand that they all should get together. But then I would say, so then they never really transcended and included together to begin with. And my question is, do actually these stages have the ability to move through each other and to be comfortable with one another uh, without uh, too much uh, violence? And it's actually just the pathological uh, versions of them that um, have this uh, antagonism, which gives us a project to work on once we've labeled these? Or uh, is it inherent to the nature that these will always be at odds with one another? Because a thing that we try to work on with our values, which it's not actually in the exact order that I would map on to any sort of spiral, but was the idea of how could these have tension between each other but exist within the same worldview and actually work together towards creating a whole instead of them as these entirely different worldviews that were clashing against each other. And I opened that to Pascal, but if that was an intelligible question, I, I ask it of all of you is how much do these stages really fight with one another and how much is that a perception of them which makes us useful and convenient as people who study this and want to, uh, you know, make money by helping them? Well, I think there's a fundamental aspect of it, which is a gamble, right? If people who recognize these different things in themselves are going to have to make a wager on the fact that it could work, because that's what our lives are about. But in terms of analyzing these actual structures, are they ever going to perfectly get along? No. Could they get along way better than they currently do? Absolutely. Right? A huge amount of the situation is that each stage can occupy a whole number of different formats. Even the ones we saw in our history may only be contingent views, that it may not have to have happened that way. Some of them are going to be better at some things than others. Some of them are going to be healthier. And from the developmentalist point of view, one of the characteristics of a healthy stage is one that doesn't put unnecessary limitation on the ability of its inhabitants to migrate at their own speed to the next level. So that becomes part of our definition of what health is. However, there is always going to be some tension. There's always going to be some violence. And when, when a structure you've been working on starts to collapse or gravitate back to a previous version of itself, it looks awful, right? If you have like Nazi Germany, if you have a modern state starting to fall back toward a feudalist hierophantic condition, everybody else stands back and goes, that's evil in the wrong way. Uh, right, So there's always going to be this tension. The, the stages as they emerge, uh, where they're healthy enough to emerge, could get along really well, but they have to keep themselves apart. Each one has to sort of safeguard itself from unruly manifestations of its junior systems. Uh, and part of that's just normal running of a system. It's like we have a city, you're going to have some police officers or something like that. There is an, an aggression and an exclusion and a holding the structure together that is a definite forceful activity. However, I would say 80-85% of the problems we see are simply because the levels are unhealthy versions of themselves and haven't been arranged to our satisfaction. I think they could absolutely be fine-tuned in a much more smooth, exquisite, fantastic way to move people through and have them cooperate with each other. I would love to connect this with something that I was reading that you had done talking about 
a devil above and a devil below, the relationship between a stage and the unknown of where it's going and where it came from. Could you speak more to that and how uh, that is perhaps some way to mediate the conflict between stages? You know, well, I'd like yeah. to add, I mean, there just one, real quick, just I also was thinking as a question, just broadly framing it in terms of, uh, you know, Wilbur has talked about the red Jesus and the blue Jesus and the orange Jesus and the green. So we could look at this as the interplay of the, the different stage uh, Satans, in a sense, in that, you know, broader contextualizing of that, that's all. Thank you, Bruce. Well, I think if you were inside a system, you're inside, um, you know, a cultural value system or you're inside your own cognitive, whatever it is, <laughs> Taurus maybe, you're going to look up, you're going to see your potential access to the next level, except it's going to be somewhat occluded. You are not at that level. It contains a whole bunch of things that do not meet your current self-definition. And you're going to have to go through a lot of things and incorporate a lot of things you might not want to incorporate in order to get there. So it's going to have this diabolical, satanic, adversarial aspect from above you. However, there's also a very legit one below you. And I think it comes across in the way just casual people think about the devil, let's say. Right? In, in, like everybody kind of knows the Socratic daemon, that there's some kind of higher indwelling spirit that may have been um, unnecessarily excluded through history and to which we might turn to for real guidance in ourselves or as the essence of ourselves. Great. But we also know what it means when a, you know, a drug addict goes to a self-help program and realizes that he's got a demon inside him. He means he's doing just horrible shit that he can't bear and neither can the people around him. And those things, those things that he's doing are to some degree ordinary things from lower levels, right? Being, being minerals is an ordinary thing from a lower level. But if I turn you back into minerals, that's murder. So there's a tendency, there's a way for the darkness to draw you down or to draw you up, right? And there's an archetype or a figure that can represent either of those. And for most people, they're very conflated, right? People who are hyper-reactive against uh, something like Satanism, even very sophisticated people can be weird about it. And one of the reasons is their own non-integrated shadow. But another reason is they're aware that there's a tangle between the, the evil they don't want and the evil they do want. And I think just the last thing to, to highlight on that is the evil that they don't want is also something at some point may be reintegrated in a healthy way where, uh, yeah. you know. I, I think it's like being in the forest, you know, in order to reintegrate the elements that were in a structure that was breaking down, other systems have to tear those things apart and reabsorb them. So that the, the devil you don't want um, you don't, you don't want it. However, all of its parts you might want. If you can break them up, if you can tease them apart, they can be forms of strength. However, everybody's in a different situation. It's not the case that everybody can integrate everything, right? Some people are gonna have to draw some walls and say, I just break down if I go there, and we don't want that. Uh, one, one thing um, over time, there has been this bifurcation of Satan and Lucifer um, as kind of the archetypes they represent. And the, what I'm getting is when you're, describing the above and below. And as a Gibsarian, spatialized language is driving me crazy. I'll just throw that out there. We can keep, <laughs> we can keep, go, we can keep going. Um, but uh, that Lucifer would be what you're describing as above. It's that, it's your future. It's that which you've not yet gotten to. 
and Satan is the earthly, the more imminent. So it's like the transcendent imminent. And, and there have been even people in kind of esoteric, vaguely, uh, generally left-hand path uh, communities online and different groups that do talk about that difference or like to say, uh, there's the people that uh, uh, are, are Luciferians and they're not Satanists. Uh, so, you know, Satanists or Satanism is traditionally more associated with earthly. Uh, the classic form of it in the U.S. is very earthly. Like, it's all about you and how successful you are and how much money you can make. Um, that's kind of a lot of the, Le the Levian view of Satanism is, is, is definitely earthly and mundane. Um, and then the people that are self-identified Luciferians are more interested in the, the, um, the more philosophical, the, the more, um, I don't, I don't want to overuse the term transcendent cause that's not necessarily correct word. Um, so there, there is that bifurcation of those things, the two different devils. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I see the value in, in seeing it that way, but I also don't think it's fully accurate, but it does point to that, that split that you're talking about. Yeah, I think, that was... I think there's a, there's a polarization that has to occur in order to move us somehow. And that polarization moves toward a place where the opposites get integrated, combined, or murky somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the idea of up is a tricky idea as well, because if you were to look, I mentioned Taurus a few minutes ago, you look up from the center of a Taurus, you, you look, you see something that looks like up, but it's essentially the same as the surround of the entire system. And therefore, right. it's coming back up at you from below at the same time. Mm -hmm. As I was going to mention, too. sorry, just one, one thing real quick, um, just related to uh, the discussion of about development and also about the breaking down of the elements and what's carried forward and not in the conflict. Uh, one pretty classical Wilberian view of the developmental sequence is that what gets carried forward are deep structures, um, but not surface structures. And so um, often people find themselves socially in conflict with the, the surface structures, the, the particular expressions from that you know, previous uh, structural level that are no longer acceptable. Um, but there are, there are parts of the deep structure that, that get folded into and then re-actualized, re-redeployed within a higher level of development. They become foundational to that higher level of development. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the way that the world showed up from, you know, the exclusive operation um, or, or primary operation of those structures at an earlier stage get carried forward as values now. That makes sense. I've got a question, if you guys don't mind. Because I'm, I'm thinking about you guys as, uh, you know, Satanism at the pluralistic and post-pluralistic forms, if we want to accept those forms. Polydots. Um, when we look back at Levian Satanism, do you see it as essentially, you know, orange meme modernist Satanism? And to what degree do you think it was a healthy example of that? And to what degree do you think was it a corrupt example of that? Um... So, uh, one, one, you know, caveat, um, I, I use the SD terms just to be able to, to talk in a language uh, with everybody. So I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable talking in SD terms, but I can, I can go along with this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, if you want to think of that kind of mapping of these kind of different, um, the different memes with different kind of cultural historical periods of modernism and postmodernity and things like that, then certainly I think uh LeVay was the one that first really put a modern stamp on it in that sense the kind of stereotypical orange uh values of like self-authoring and self-responsibility uh on the on the individual level of things that could be associated say culturally with different things um uh, of, of more secularization 
uh, getting away from hypocrisy of the church and things like that in, uh, in the middle of the 1960s San Francisco. It was also a reaction against an, um, a green that was coming along. You, they hated the hippies counterculture. Um, they were known to physically throw people out of the black house who brought drugs with them because they didn't want to have anything to do with the hippies. Uh, so, I mean, that could be an example of the, that kind of green emergence that they were like, no, we want nothing to do with that. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very self, self-focused, self-offership, which, of course, was the whole Ayn Rand objectivist kind of philosophy. So I don't know where you would put that, but that's where that, a lot of that philosophy came from. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's some some value and truth in in framing things those way the, the, that way for people that are that are kind of in these lexicons. To, to speak intuitively from what I think from my exposure to that sort of, for lack of a better word, vibe of it, I, I frankly think that uh, Rand included are are much more if we have to put colors on it, uh, red in nature, and that the self-authoring is like pre-conventional. You know, uh, Hanzi, unrelated from us, uh, we would call that stage Faustian, actually, and that it's, you know, the stage of Achilles and the Iliad saying that this is mine and that I deserve it. And I think that it's multiple things happening at one time, but while it is a breaking away from the uh, revealed uh, truth that comes from something like a church, it's also in its rejection of, like, true uh, humanism and an accepting of all points of views i think is fairly regressive actually and i i find it uh like sort of less evolved than a lot of uh, conventional religious perspectives in certain ways at the same time it is filled with very 1960s useful commentary and does have a more evolved uh, code than uh the like the perspectives it was coming from. So like all of these, it's complicated, but I, I would, if that's what healthy uh, orange is, then <laughs> uh, I think orange is not very healthy. And I think actually there may be a reading and I'm, I'm really, you know, going off base of speculating here, but a lot of what we assume as a, a sort of healthy corporate orange uh, self-authoring is uh, quite a bit more uh, red in a way because there's not a lot of, um, you know, basically like underlying uh, constitutional structures that are uh, making sure people have um, their humanity respected in this uh, like corporate space. And I see Ayn Rand as uh, kind of giving credence to these more regressive structures. But I'm very interested in the idea of uh, fake or superficial modernity. I think it's one of the big problems we face today is that we aren't, we don't really have a, a healthy self-regenerating uh, orange meme, if we want to use those terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was I going to say? One of the things in terms of the social activism of Satanism is to provoke forth the fake forms of the modern civilization. That's one of the things you see if you watch the Hail Satan documentary one of the nice things about it is this strategy of trying to um, get people who are seemingly rational, constitutionally bound, reasonable humanist people to reveal the fact that they're actually anchored in some kind of dogmatic, dogmatic baggage, you know, that the, the Satanists don't necessarily seek the dominion of the Satanists over the society. But when you make moves that look like that, 
it provokes the fact that a number of other groups or forces have been doing the same thing and it brings them out into the open, revealing that they were kind of using modernity as a puppet most of this time. Yeah, and that's like to a lot of us that were attracted to that years ago when we, when this organization kind of emerged was that was a new take on things. Whereas uh, Temple of Set was more about their internal kind of uh, esoteric practice and initiation and ritual and the, the Church of Satan was like, you know, we're not political, we, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't take positions in politics. It was, you know, they didn't, they didn't see, and they were very, to this day, they, those organizations go at each other uh, about, you, know, you shouldn't be doing stuff in public, you know, you're not a Satanist, a lot of the, um, you know, no true Scotsman kind of stuff going back and forth. So that was, that, that is an emergence in and of itself, this, this form of activism coming out of this particular kind of uh, aspect of counterculture, underground culture, or um, read in a new religious movement. So it was, it was co very controversial even in that world when it, when it happened. So that in of itself, I see is kind of a, plur a pluralist, and they use the term pluralism, like it's, a, a, like it's on a you know, button, uh, like a, a loop, um, how you know, they're looking for a pluralistic society. So that, that particular green out of orange, um, but I would say both of them are also very, in a, in a broader sense, very postmodern because they're, uh, the uh, the levee literally like did like a collage you know he did like a bricolage of i'm gonna take this i'm gonna take this i'm gonna take this i'm gonna put it together and i'm gonna market and i'm gonna sell it um so in that sense that's very kind of almost leading into postmodern. um and then tst also went almost full on like yes men uh which early early on there that was one of the the things they cited the very first thing they did at the rick scott rally in florida was they hired an actor to, to, to play a Satanist who was, you know, for Rick Scott for getting this law passed that was like this, you're going to help uh, Satanists have these religious freedoms. Um, you know, this original, like, kind of, like, kind of brilliant trolling that they haven't really lived up to since, but got a lot of us on board. Um, and to this day, people who have seen the documentary now are like, oh, my God, what is this group? I need to figure out what, what this is all about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of activism is, is in and of itself, it is about inciting a... Um, a reaction to try to get people to take a mirror and see things a certain way. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely historical precursors, um, you know, people using uh, Satan to get people's attention, you know, earlier in the 20th century, but they weren't self-identified Satanists, uh, for example. I was talking to a uh, change manager uh, who works with the Holacracy and he's had a lot of success with uh, implementations of this program, which uh, if you don't know, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an operating system or a constitution that you have your company uh, adopt to bring about some uh, more efficiencies in distributed leadership. Um, and I was asking him, why are you better at this than other people? And he was saying, I've studied what helps people evolve towards adopting something that is a more complex and better way of doing things. And my trick is I don't make them learn any new words. I don't uh, teach them new concepts. I don't come in trying to convert them. I look at what they're doing and I use their concepts and I go, do a little more of that, uh, bring that out. I think inevitably if we want to shift the point of view of people who have this Christian mythos, having them learn these other rules of this different game called like secular reality or just waiting for enough people to stumble across it on Wikipedia isn't going to work. I think what should be tried 
is to show up and to use the characters they're familiar with and be like, hey, in this season of the TV show, I'm actually uh, like team up with the good guys in a way that you wouldn't expect, you know? Use these concepts and let the dialectical unfolding that's actually in a lot of those texts reveal itself. Sure, and I think a lot of people have, well, a handful of people, let's say, have done that very successfully, right? Blake is a great example of a guy who worked with those existing forms. I'm a huge fan of Gurdjieff's book, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. He plays with it in a very bizarre sci-fi way, but a lot of smart people have, have done this. There's a precedent for it. There's a whole lineage of trying that move, and it's very successful. Do they make any money? <laughs> Hard to say. I'm I'm interested. I hear I'm, maybe this is a very obscure question for this kind of dialogue, but the parallels between people's uh, private, energetic, spiritual, psychological, even social ritual practice of Satanism and satanic activism, satanic kind of social reality. Do, do you see those as having? Um, similar forms, similar shapes, similar goals, similar kind of moves. Well, can be more clear. What do you mean? The, the, what are the two things that are similar that you're asking? Um, like uh, Satanism in the sense of A, occultism, B, ritual, and C, some kind of personal transformational practice and stance involving these images and patterns. And on the other hand, you know, this sort of social trolling, this sort of defiant protection, these patterns of social and ethical outreach. Uh, do they just seem like two different zones or does it seem to you like there's strong parallels between them? Um, so a really interesting, was really, it's really more of a monograph than a full book came out uh, last year. Uh, author, uh, she's at a university in Toronto, somewhere in Ottawa, Toronto, uh, is The Cult Origins of Anarchism. It was really fascinating. Um, and it's a, it's a parallel. Uh, but she traced a lot of these kind of occult and uh, kind of more esoteric uh, secret societies and people, groups of people um, getting together to do rituals, initiations, and how they were active in politics. And, and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to pretend that everything is normal right now. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that in some cases they are separate. Some people really just want to do their ritual magic. They want to go in their, their chamber at home and have their, have their altar and do the things that help them like get through life. And then that's their spiritual practice. Um, but then there's people that I think uh, are interested more in the intersections of these things, of these ideas that have kind of have all these different rich lineages crossing cultures over many times and how they tied into different political movements, different uh, social justice movements. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think there, there's enough difference to, that, that we shouldn't be conflated, but I think there's some interesting, interesting similarities and overlaps that are probably worth exploring more. I mean, some people, they see it as their, their ritual is the activism itself. So instead of doing something in the private, uh, in, a, in a congregation or in a, you know, in a basement or a, 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 a wherever, you're, you're doing it out in public. And that is like your, your sacrament is your, your social justice activism or whatever activism it is you're doing. I've heard people talk that way about some of that. Because um, some of that can get very intense. I mean, if you're... Uh, if you're, um, you know, standing standing out in front of a Planned Parenthood and you're one of the trained escorts, and there's, you know, mad mob of evangelicals yelling and spitting at you, that's a pretty intense experience as a as a ritual protecting somebody for people that do that sort of work, or say people that go out in the seas with Sea Shepherd, 
um, to protect uh, whales in the Southern Ocean where you can die. Um, I, you know, I'd heard on pretty reliable uh, information that a member went on that went on that with Sea Shepherd was on that show Whale Wars. Of course, the, they don't talk about what they do. Um, they keep that private. But and for that person, that, I'm sure that was a very intense way of their their practice in doing something in the world uh, to be in the Southern Ocean fighting the Japanese whalers. You know, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's people that do tie these things together, but at, to the amount of the extent to which I have no idea. I'll, I'll try to speak a bit personally and be candid that I would say my experience being fully uh, in the world uh, doing satanic activism at this point is fairly uh, novice. Um, it's, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to having more opportunities where I feel like I'm in the world uh, manifesting these values. That said, it's been a really transformative experience to articulate the principles of doing this and drawing from this broader movement. And I've seen them show up in my personal interactions and in my thought and in my intentions to uh, try to develop more capacities in myself. Um, even just the, the values that we worked on together, I see them molding and shaping. And more than that, like highlighting and focusing um, my intentions and development in this way that is, is really surprising how effective it's been. And in some ways, it's the same sort of mindset that led me to here through lots of diverse paths, which included being atheistic yet still going to Catholic mass during college for some reason. Whatever was leading me through there uh, is similar to the values that we articulated. And I think that there is a, um, and you know, to, to borrow a, a concept that we even steal a, an as below, <laughs> as above, so below sort of duality here, where I think that the ways that these play out in the world, in activism and unfolding of values around other people is, uh, is very uh, similar. But I can really just speak from my like internal experience of trying to like integrate these into my reality. There's something that I wanted to ask about uh, that I think will be, you know, on people's minds, especially without much knowledge of the work that you're doing. Um, I lived through the satanic scare in the eighties. I remember that. Mm -hmm. I remember actually breathless stories from friends who found what they thought were sacrificed animals out in the forest and things like that. It was a, it was a big hysteria going all across the United mm -hmm. States at that time. And, and people were genuinely afraid of it. And it seems that we're kind of witnessing a resurgence of that kind of almost mythic level terror. <laughs> Um, in the QAnon narratives. Yeah, it's and, more globalized because of the internet, yeah. Right, and I think, you know, in one, on the one hand, there's, there's actually a, a right, and I think, you know, a lore or FOSTA-lined concern to protect children and, and, and people who might be being exploited by, okay. by ruthless <laughs> people in the world, you know. Um, oh. But at the same time, you know, there's this whole, you know, 
uh, if I can use mythology without necessarily entirely fictionalizing, um, but there's this whole mythology around, you know, uh, Hillary and, 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 and cannibalism and Satanism and child, you know, exploitation and, and you know. On so, Mars, on Mars, by the way. Yeah. Adrenochrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, people have it. They'll remember, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music and these like obvious things will, you know, turn you to the devil. And there was like the bass ma back masking on the albums. Like, I think it was Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne. There was these court, you know, big trials, you know, where they were trying to say these bands were responsible for suicides. Um, you know, uh, there was like the, the what was it? The uh, Ed Meese had like the anti porn thing that under the Reagan administration it was it wasn't just pornography it was anything that was deemed um uh what does uh, what's the word um anyways un undesirable according to this kind of moralistic kind of way and they uh you know they, they took they raided the alternative tentacles label in San Francisco and they had these huge court things because they were using an HR Giger piece of artwork on one of the record covers so there was this whole like kind of moral panic uh you know people's lives were ruined there was like the whole preschool in Southern California where supposedly there was these underground tunnels and people went to prison. And then there was these people in Houston, the famous story um, uh, in uh, they, they made the movie paradise lost actually was about the three kids in West somewhere in the South. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, one of them, uh, Damien Eccles, he's, he was in prison for years and he, you know, there's a lot of interviews with him and how he got through that. He got really into Buddhism and meditation and now he tours and talks and stuff. But yeah, and, and then a lot of those things, we're seeing like uh, resurgences of them. The whole Pizzagate thing, which was tied into the whole Clinton kind of uh, Maria Abramovich uh, stuff. And then you have, uh, you know, someone showing up at this like pizza place with a gun thinking they're saving children or, you know, some, no, fortunately no one was hurt. So yeah, I mean, it's a, they're, they're, they're moral panics that, you know, you, when times are uncertain, people reach out to, uh, to find scapegoats, like almost literally. Um, and so now we have the internet where you can move a lot of bad information around very quickly and mix it in with some accurate information and people that want to believe certain things or are looking for a scapegoat have plenty there. Uh, so that these, these very almost professional conspiracy theorists, uh, and I, there are, we know there are conspiracies, so I don't want to say there's no conspiracies. We know that things have, have happened. Um, you know, like the Ford Pino case, we know that Ford, uh, conspired to make sure people would, uh, die basically when uh, Lee Coca became what uh, 10 years later the greatest thing to the audio industry that's a conspiracy I think corporate conspiracies the uh, business conspiracy so we know these things happen um, but uh, to then find it again going so far where people believe that NASA has a secret bases on Mars where we're taking children that somehow the Clintons want access to is just friggin bonkers um, and why is that it's an interesting phrase, moral panic, because it, in so many ways, it's, it's an immoral panic. That the panicked people are the ones um, exhibiting the immoral behavior, and that to some degree, shadow-wise, they interpret the world in such a way that will allow them to behave badly. And then the idea, like the idea of a bad man often lets a good man do bad things and then pat himself on the back. So it, it's interesting to me because it gets a little bit to this element of trolling in a weird way. The way I'm thinking of it is that there's this shift between people getting called Satanists to people starting to call themselves Satanists. Mm -hmm. It's this beautiful doubling down move. And there's also been this cultural event where 
Um, Satanists have been blamed for things that weren't existing. They've been treated in a way as if they were trolling the civilization. There has been a trolling going on, these panics, these things. Yeah. And then I think there's also now this slight doubling down where some of the more sophisticated new Satanists are taking this role of, um, of raising cultural trolling to a, an ethical level that can do some good. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The, the biggest conspiracy theory I obviously should have mentioned that was an actual conspiracy theory was all the stuff with the priests in the Catholic church and then protecting priests who were the people that were actually doing things to children. Um, so that there was this thing happening. There were people that were uh, taking advantage of kids in, in an awful way, but it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't the church. It was these, these, these global cabals of elites who have secret underground tunnels and special NASA uh, connections. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that allowed them to, to, to keep that going and, and um, have more bad behavior there because then people don't believe it's them. They believe it's someone else. Does that, does that let them continue that bad behavior for however many decades it was? Yeah, there's, a, there's a role to be played of being defiantly protective of people who are scapegoated, people who are uh, identified as the source of uh, all the societal ills and are eradicated. And then I think there's also uh, a role to play as the, the Lucifer uh, at the next uh, stage of development, which I think practically what that means and that shows up uh, a lot now is people say that like the gay agenda is satanic. And that creates, you know, an interesting kind of unavoidable problem for Satanists where you want to say like, well, we are hella gay and we're very pro-gay and you're, you're saying Satanism in a way that we don't mean, but also do we have something, some form of helpful trolling to say, yeah, that's, it is. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. The, this thing that you're throwing at it as some sort of category that's going to make it terrible. Let's remove that as a category and say, you know what? It is satanic and Satanists are actually uh, lots of different types of people. And some of them are very cool and you would get along with them and that there is not an inherent uh, like, ethical negatory that you can apply to some group and say that's what they are at the same time there are fucked up people there are these conspiracies you know when you step into this role and and i see this as a as an issue right with uh taking on the kind of heavy burden of having an integral perspective where you understand the point of view of or you strive to every type of person what do you do about the uh you know, the, the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world, these people who you could probably understand in some way, uh, but that's not a person I want to uh, ever be defiantly protective of. And so if I'm just standing in for the different um, misunderstandings of the values of different stages, there are people that I still feel like I need a category uh, for. But then again, maybe that just is... Uh, a flaw that uh, needs to be understood is how to still be discerning, but to be radically accepting. You know, I, I don't have a solution there. Well, I think um, in kind of classic integral theory, that's handled with developmental lines a lot. 
where right your ethical intelligence is a little bit different than your cognitive intelligence so your ability to understand someone and take their perspective doesn't necessarily tell us how you're going to relate to them and what you think should be done with them and right a person could be very lots of people have been very good at taking the perspectives of others but they're not necessarily at a high level of personal moral development where they would know what to do with those people in, in a way that satisfies all kinds of different needs I mean, there's a famous phrase, Wilbur's, uh, you know, shoot Hitler in the face with love in your heart. Um, and even that's sort of indicating two parallel lines of intelligence operating simultaneously. Yeah, so it looks like we're at about 90 minutes in already. Uh, was there any other questions you had lined up, Bruce? Was there any other, any other topics you wanted to go through there? Uh, Layman? One other that was on my mind, if, and, and we can decide to keep it or not. Um, I appreciated some of the references in the Laura and Faust websites to uh, horror and, and sci-fi aesthetics and uh, to the literary origins of, of Satanism. And you know, we find uh, other uh, literary religions, uh, the, the whole movement around Castaneda merging into the Toltecs, you know, and even around Star Wars and things like that. So uh, how do you see yourselves as a you know a literary religious movement um so i mean i think it's important to point out that they're contrary to what most people think there are many different types of satanism and not all of them are explicitly in the literary tradition mm -hmm. um so we're well we're we're broadly a part of the literary satanic tradition um which um is we give explicit value to just aesthetics and fiction and we see, not in the same way that someone might decide they want to be a Jedi or a Sith, where they get very serious about like Star Wars mythology, but that we're also looking into the, like the, the deeper, more rich kind of uh, context that those people were writing in in the first place. So if we're, you know, if we're interested in the literary tradition or uh, from the class classical literary tradition of romantics or something like that, um, it's not just that this was a good story. It's like we're actually seeing all those those themes and all the the uh, ideas that were tied into the, what was happening at the time in that culture and how we relate to those things. So we could look at something like Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, That's like a touchstone of the literary tradition. You know, she's citing Milton. She's talking about you know, Prometheus, who was the inspiration there was Ben Franklin, apparently, going out because of his experiments with electricity. So, you know, it's just these like very, very complex cultural moments create these kind of very cool aesthetic things. And we got a whole new genre. We got gothic horror came out of it and science fiction uh, or a certain type of gothic horror and then the invention of, of modern science fiction um, to the more contemporary stuff where we're just as happy to find something in a movie uh, that came out a few years ago and find as much value in that as say something as some scrolls written 2000 years ago. Um, so, I mean, we're explicitly um, for, you know, whatever term we want to use post postmodern religion, we're secular religion most of us are straight up atheists but not in the reductive materialist kind of way and we have people that are you know deists and we have some polytheists and people that are pagan so um the 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 science fiction aesthetic the horror aesthetics those are aesthetics itself are as important as any of the other things for guiding for guidance especially though a lot of us have been more into pushing science fiction as thing that we're interested in and um not dismissing or diminishing the role of the the more classic like metal Satanism or the horror stuff, which a lot of us love, 
but to look at this more like brighter science fiction futuristic thing because that's what Frankenstein was in its day it was this science was this futuristic science fiction story and like what is that now um and is something being at the origins of our of our canon I guess what, what how do we re redo that how do we create something new that is very futuristic that is very Promethean um and that in and of itself I guess is the religion it's not a specific set of rituals maybe uh or uh, uh codified uh, ways of community functions in public or in private it's this kind of a uh, shared values and the what uh, the aesthetics aesthetic aspects which are not just superficial they're 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 much deeper than than even some things that seem more more uh, profound in some ways dark futurism i love it <laughs> uh i think to uh bruce's point i think it's interesting that uh, there's a very strong anti-modern aesthetics in a lot of horror, dark fantasy literature and film, right? Right back to Blake, people are starting to take this uh, supplemental or reactionary position to critique the emergence of modernity and its styles. And of course, they're going to reach back to the pre-modern. They're going to grab a lot of medieval stuff, which provides a lot of the engine for uh, dark fantasy aesthetics. So you've got all along the people who are really interested in the redemptive and transcendental powers inside modernity and going beyond and critiquing modernity, reaching for this kind of gothic mood that's found in a lot of these works. Lots Even of something like Lovecraft, the Lovecraft mythos, is in many ways a, a very strong critique of the modern world space and the way that it looks and is laid out, the way it feels. Yeah, definitely. And then that, I mean, that is like in some ways the definition of romanticism, uh, of literary romanticism. And uh, obviously we're talking about a very specific group of, of romantics or romantic artists. But yeah, I mean, what were they romanticizing? They were romanticizing something that was not this overwhelming of logic and machinery and industrialization that was really starting to come on at that time. Um, so, you know, they're, again, it was, it was uh, you know, late, late uh, 19th century England where the Industrial Revolution, as we know it, started in England, um, where a lot of this stuff was really coming out of. So it was, it was definitely a reaction. Um, I mean, I think a lot of us now, we, we don't want to say, we don't want reason. We don't want, uh, you know, the rational mind. Like, we appreciate those things as well, where some romantics really wanted to get away from that and then uh some of the art movements were like no ra no rationality it's all the unconscious it's all um random or chance so now where we're at where we can look at all those things and put it back together in a way that makes sense to us or or what what matches the what matches our world today uh like hyper connected 24 7 everything uh information traveling non-stop more information just went over the internet since we've been talking than all of human history up to the year 2000 maybe even um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's reactionary, but also, um, kind of a creative, creative thing at the same time. Is there anything any of you would like to add? Just bring our devil's night talk to a, a close. Uh, I feel like we weren't sinister enough. I don't know. I feel like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, should have, we should have, so we should have done something more stereotypically evil. So, I don't know. like someone could eat a hamburger on screen or something. <laughs> Unthinkable. I think, I think highlighting the amount of veganism that is in contemporary Satanism uh, should, should be something discussed. There's, there's something interesting there. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like, it seems like the, we could go back and tease apart a lot of things and have 
uh, more discussions in, in the future should people be interested if, if you uh, end up with enough people that like this talk and like, hey, what they mentioned that one thing in passing. Why don't you spend more time on that? So there's an audience and people want to hear more. Um, then you could always do that in the future. Well, I'll tell you, you wearing pants? one of my best experiences with the archetype of the devil was in the movie, the original, The Prophecy. The Christopher Walken? <laughs> exactly. So you got the Archangel Gabriel making his own play for power against God. And you go through the whole movie and the humans are, how are we going to handle this problem? They can't handle this problem. And in the end, Lucifer has to come forward and say, look, this has nothing to do with you. This is between me and God. This goes way back. And there was a sense when I saw that as a kid, I thought, yeah, this, this figure plays into the rightness of the world. It's mm -hmm. part of the real structure of things. It's not a deviation from the system. It's something about how the system actually works. It's beautiful and it's honorable and we mm -hmm. absolutely need it. It fits into some important spot. So that's probably when I was a kid, the first time I ever had a great feeling about the devil. <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know where my first was, but uh, maybe I'll um, I'll think of it before we sign off here. Uh, I had a, a bit of a similar one, which was from the movie. Uh, I think it's a remake. Uh, definitely is actually uh, Bedazzled, the one with um, Elizabeth Hurley and uh, what's his name? He's not in anything anymore um, from the Mummy. Uh, and uh, anyway. Right. Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and uh, the he, most discussion I've ever had. And he makes a deal with the devil, played by Elizabeth Hurley. Which, first of all, ugh, you know, like how can you not like have a thing for the devil after that? And then at the end of the movie, um, we've been introduced to an angel at some point who's uh, you know trying to help Brendan Fraser out of this like uh, all of these kerfuffles that he's finding himself in because it's basically that you know. Uh, overly literal interpretations of you get what you want. That's sort of like Amelia Bedelia, uh, genie in a bottle logic. And he keeps, you know, uh, like getting more than he bargained for. And at the very end of the movie, she's having a conversation. Uh, she's actually like playing chess with an angel and it's clear like they're friends and Brendan Fraser sees this and that they're friends with each other and that this is a sort of thing that they're working together on. And my mind was blown. I was like, can you, like, like I wasn't even like a religious kid really, but I was like, can you do this in a movie? Like, is this legal? Um, and can, if I can just draw attention to the show, The Good Place, which I would say is a, a thoroughly like a meta modern presentation of what it is to be in heaven and hell. And then you have uh, forces from either side uh, kind of aligning with each other in these really weird ways all in a kind of non-theistic like mythos version of how the universe works just using these concepts to unfold these like a uh, moral development that people are going through i think that's a really fascinating hyper popular version of trolling with these different symbologies to help people understand their relationship with um their personal development in a secular way that borrows language from uh, religion. So, uh, you know, it, this is happening. Yeah. Uh, did you see Good Omens, the, uh, the adaption of the uh, yeah. uh, Terry Patchett book? So the series was good. It was, it was really good. But if you get a chance to read the book um, the, or, or watch the series, uh, it's, five, it's like five parts or six parts on Amazon. But that's also another one that plays with some of these 
kind of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a thing going on behind the scenes and everyone else is just kind of here, but it is the natural world. And this is what's going on. And this is the structure of things. And, you know, it's cynical. It's funny. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's David Tennant is fantastic as, uh, as a demon. Um, but the, the, the book, of course, they always say the book is better, but the book is better. Uh, but I would write Good Omens uh, is, is, is very, very entertaining and, and ties in a lot of these themes. I know that was the first. I read that in the 90s, so I'd been in a while that I'd already had these ideas, I guess. But um, I think we're going to give Satanism a bad name. It's going to seem like people who just hang out and talk about the TV shows they like. It's yeah. definitely not like that at all. <laughs> yeah. I think if we want to give a really satanic ending to this uh, broadcast, we should invite uh, Frater Pascal to stand up. <laughs> no, what can you show on this thing? You like to sleep? All right, to hell with you. <laughs> yes. So Hail have, Satan. Hail we, Satan. We have some nudity. That's fantastic. All right. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, we can, we can we can work on improving this this Satan Annika aspects of it. <laughs> Definitely more Annika. Okay. Is she? All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Happy Devil's Night. You Cheers. too. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. Talk to you.